house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. guys I grew up with. What do we say to him? We'll say nothing. He's going to hell for seven years. What am I going to do? Wish him luck? Champagne for my real friends and real pain for my sham friends. Can't believe you brought my student in here. We haven't done anything wrong yet. What do you mean yet? She's the only girl I've ever kept fantasizing about after I slept with her. Is that normal? That's a pretty good kind of normal. We haven't talked about this at all. You know, this is our last no, night. it's not our last night. My last night. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast waiting for the BOGO sale from the Blouse Man. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File. I'm here, as always, with this fucking guy. Get a load of this fucking <laughs> This fucking, fucking fuck guy. guy. Joe Reed. This mook. Uh, yeah, a lot of that. A lot of that in uh, in Spike Lee's New York, which is uh, You're fun. Irish, though, right? So I believe your slur would be a mick. Yes. The slur for me, yes. If we want to bring in ethnic slurs, uh, a, a mick. <laughs> which um, we do not. <laughs> I'm also literally, I'm more French than anything, which my mother will uh, always remind me because her side of the family is entirely French. So I'm a frog, I guess. If you uh, really you are a uh, ha ha. Yeah, exactly. Me in the corner. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, always looking to um, uh, boil anthropomorphic crabs in my little in my kitchen. Yes. How do you think that monologue would have gone? Because this movie, we're going to talk a lot about nine eleven. Um, yeah, uh, we're sometimes secretly a like. 9-11 movie culture podcast. <laughs> I mean, it shows up in a lot of movies. What are you going to do? You know what I mean? Um, I mean, like, this kind of is, like, the good 9-11 movie, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you think that monologue would have gone down <laughs> if this wasn't basically viewed through the eyes uh, this movie wasn't you know positioned through the eyes of 9-11 because i know that there was some concern over the monologue like yeah. in development of it and now it's just like it's it's quintessential yes. to this movie it's like one of i think among the most memorable Spike Lee sequences, yeah. it's so it says something so specific. I think about post nine eleven despair, unique to New York City. Yeah. Well, of all of the things, there's a lot of things about Twenty Fifth Hour, the movie that feel serendipitous, which feels like the wrong word to talk about when you talk about when you know nine eleven is part of the discussion. But just in terms of a lot of this movie feels. Co- coherent and cohesive in a way that it maybe shouldn't because of where the component parts come from. This book was written before 9-11, but the movie becomes a potent 9-11 allegory. The, the 
uh, monologue that you're talking about that Edward Norton delivers into the bathroom where he runs down all the different populations of New York City that becomes this sort of like dark love letter and also a recrimination for himself was in originally the David Benioff novel, which he adapted into his own screenplay. So like this, and it was, as you mentioned, it was the publisher of the book initially wanted to cut it out of the book. The early development of the movie wanted to cut it out of the movie. Spike Lee said at one point in an interview, he said the script that he got, he got the script and then he read the book. And when he saw that monologue in the book, he says to Benioff, where is this in the script? And Benioff said, you know, it got taken out in development. And so Spike wanted to put that in. And it feels like if you're just watching the movie cold and don't know any of this, it feels like, oh, that must've been a thing that Spike Lee put in there because it's such a spikely kind of thing. It recalls the uh, mm-hmm. do the right thing kind of explicitly. Right. And, and there's a lot about 24 that sort of feels that way as an act of adaptation, as an act of Spike Lee and David Benioff sort of like combining in this, obviously there's going to be a temptation throughout this discussion, I think on both of our parts to sort of valorize Spike Lee and demonize Damon, David Benioff and be like, all the good stuff is Spike Lee and all the stuff we maybe don't like as much as David. I Benioff. don't, I mean, and like, I want to push know, against that a little bit. I, that's actively kind of how I feel about this movie, because I feel like on the page, it is kind of reprehensible, but like this to me is such a feat of directing versus writing, because like, I think all of the, you know, viewing it through the lens of 9-11 and, you know, making everybody's behavior in this movie not just being kind of the base level behavior, but also being representative of some other type of psychological thing going on specifically within New York. But like, that's not necessarily true of the script. And like, uh, this is a script that's all like, that does a lot of, uh, you know, uh, ogling of younger women and, it's you don't not... think it's self-critical of that, though? I think Spike Lee makes it self-critical of that, and I See, don't. But this think is the temptation I do page. want to push against because I, 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 my tendency is to go there too, and I think, I don't know. I think it's real easy. I think after Game of Thrones, David Benioff is very much like not in favor among the culture, and I do feel like there are parts of the way that this movie is effective comes from the story itself. Maybe not all of it, maybe not, you know, I think in general, this is a superbly directed film and I think it, it achieves its greatness because of that, but I don't want to fully discount the fact that like, I mean, again, that monologue in the bathroom comes from the book and that is hugely important to the way the story sees itself. I think. I mean, I I can hear you there. I definitely think it gets a lot of the impact by what Spike Lee does with it. And I think that's true of a lot of things in this movie, just like the character development, the relationship development, like the way that the movie is ultimately structured and shot and edited. But like things like the finale of the movie, not to put the cart before the horse. Sure, sure, sure. On the page, I maybe don't, go along with that i maybe think it's a little hokey and i think the way that spike sure. Lee pulls it off it is anything but right so like uh it's it's beyond the things that make me kind of like brace myself or cringe yeah. um 
that I think it's more of a directing feat than a writing feat. The movie is most effective to me in its most operatic moments, which I think is definitely a credit to Spike Lee to be able to have the kind of chutzpah to be able to do that. I also feel like he's probably one of the few directors who would have been able to get away with a lot of stuff like this because of his stature as a filmmaker, because of the kinds of films that he had made up until this point. I don't think any other filmmakers... Or I don't think there would be a lot of other filmmakers who would have been get, able to get away with that bathroom monologue and have the audience know instinctively that the filmmaker is coming at this from a uh, a knowing, loving, you know, like mm. all of this, all of this hate speech feels like a love letter. And like, how many filmmakers would we have automatically given that grace to as an audience? Other than Spike Lee. Probably not too many, I would say. Fuck the Uptown Brothers. They never pass the ball. They don't want to play defense. They take five steps on every layup to the hoop. And then they want to turn around and blame everything on the white man. Slavery ended 137 years ago. Move the fuck on. Fuck the corrupt cops with their anus-violating plungers and their 41 shots standing behind a blue wall of silence you betray our trust i also think he's uh you mentioned like the operaticness of it i think that that's kind of a level of approach that he has this to this material that's how he views this material and that's what he makes it whereas on the page it's kind of this grimy chamber piece you know like uh, i'm trying to think of (laughs) like a brooklyn's finest type of movie whereas like you even get the scene of um the first scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Barry Pepper feels like, and you have Terrence Blanchard's like huge. Oh my God, that's we'll we'll get into it. We yep. can't we can't do it right now. Yeah. Um. But we will talk about Terrence Blanchard's score in this movie. But like you have a scene like that, which like feels like something that could have almost been in a much lesser movie for what is on the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, like almost completely excised from the movie, but Spike Lee kind of views it almost in this like, uh, you know, it feels like Shakespeare to be kind of cheap about it, you know, yeah. where it's like, yeah, I don't know, Polonius I, and Laertes, you know, telling us what's actually going on. You, d- but you, like that's as integral to the tone. It's as integral to like these characters being representative of something more than just who they are. Yeah. Well, I, and I think, and I don't want to fall into the trap of sort of placing myself within the psyche of the filmmaker. Cause I think sometimes that is a road that leads to, you know, showing your ass a little bit, but I am like this story feels like a story that is a fairly sober tale of responsibility and regret and, you know, sort of last moments and things like that. And in the telling of it, there is this, as I say, operatic sort of, you know, there's more emotion in this that doesn't feel like it's coming from the story. It feels like it's coming mm-hmm. from the vibes and the filmmaking. And I I can just imagine that if you are making this movie in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, like this movie is was in pre-production before 9-11 most of it, I believe, was filmed in early 2002. That's at least according to what's on IMDb, so grain of salt. Um, but 
I imagine the headspace that you are in as a filmmaker in general, but also as a filmmaker who is very much a New Yorker by definition, by constitution, by, you know, he is one of the most, you know, New York filmmakers of them all. He has a clear passion and love for a city. And so I imagine making a movie like this that doesn't, you know, textually go, you know, approach the themes of 9-11 but you can feel that like this is he as he's making this movie he's mourning he's celebrating he's confused he's uh, he's anxious there's there's you know a good bit of anxiety in this movie about like you know what will the next several years bring you know what i mean Mm -hmm. where are we going what's going to happen to us and it makes it into both an incredible film, but also like a real, real fascinating document of that moment. I also, I mean, like, again, not to get into the ending of it, but I ultimately think it comes to a place that is also looking critically at the idea of American optimism and the American dream and starting over and, you know, building from the ground up in a way that, feels like you said very mournful of like something that cannot exist uh, anymore um something that like feels totally futile but we're also kind of uh as creatures of habit um (laughs) incapable of not uh buying into that type of sad fantasy of what could be yeah well and and i do feel like and again not to jump ahead to the ending, but whatever, we've done that several times already. There is, <laughs> you're right. I think your reading of it and my reading of it is not all that dissimilar. Mm-hmm. I I want so much to believe in that ending that I sometimes forget that the fantasy of it is is sort of stripped bare pretty conclusively by the end mm-hmm. because they don't take that off ramp to the bridge. Um but I still watch that ending and I feel like, oh, I want to be left in the headspace where this could possibly be true, even though I know it's probably not. Just because mm-hmm. it's told so emotionally and I don't know. I cry two different times in this movie. I cry once at the end during that part and I cry at the end of the bathroom mirror monologue when he gets mm-hmm. when when Blanchard's score really you know, kicks in there and amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. And it makes me, you know, as a, and I did not live in New York city when this movie was made, when I first saw this movie. Um, it's definitely a movie that's taken on more resonance. The longer I have now lived here 15 years. Mm-hmm. And um, the more I feel a part of the city, the more this movie feels like it, hits me more directly and sometimes i feel fraudulent in that sometimes i feel like i haven't earned that right you know what i mean to feel Mm -hmm. what i feel at the end what the hell do i know about the tenements in alphabet city and the you know and the row houses in astoria and whatnot and yet i think part of that is i feel it through spike lee's experience Mm mm-hmm I mean, I can't think that you're alone in feeling exactly that way. We're also talking about a movie that is way more appreciated now than it was. Yeah, it wasn't panned. It was, I think there was a lot, there was, people didn't know quite how to take it. And so they 
because it came out at a, at a part of the year where there were so many other things to pay attention to, yeah. they kind of paid attention to other things. It, it's kind of, it. it's a two-headed beast, I think, in that, A, uh, we've talked about this before, we'll talk about it a little bit more later, of, like, the absolute, like, late year glut that i don't think we have seen quite since we uh, every yeah. the earliest best picture nominee in this year's lineup is the lord of the rings which i believe came out on like december 17th or yeah. 18th and there's like a two-week stretch where there's a million movies coming out so like this movie kind of suffered because of that and it also suffered from like the immediate post 9 11 like cultural landscape not just movies was all about this rallying sense of uh going through it together and patriotism and blah 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 and we all look back and we can know that it was toxic and there were very few people among us who at the time were like no this is not how i feel so well it was that but there was also parallel to that there was a sense of Let's not talk about it yet. There, yeah. like, too soon didn't get invented then, but like, it kind of did. And too soon to talk critically about it and talk critically about our critically. response. I think, like, this was the era where like shots of the twin towers were taken out of movies. You know yeah. what I mean? That like that that uh, you you didn't want to ask audiences to even have to visually think about it during your Mm -hmm. movie and i think to at that same at that that point in time you know basically a year later to add 9-11 imagery to a story that you didn't need to was Mm -hmm. very intentional and very different to what else what everything else was happening at the time it's a fascinating movie. It really is. Twenty fifth like, hour, <laughs> great movie. Total reasons why it's more appreciated now than it was at the time that we will absolutely get into. Yeah, we're already kind of just like diving deep into this movie. So let's know, do the plot description let's because I know it. we both want to talk about it. This is a movie we both really love. Yes, uh, guys, we're here. Uh, guys, uh, ladies, everyone in between, we're here to talk about the twenty fifth hour or just 25th hour it was Pretty originally i think the, the book 25th hour <laughs> i think the book was called the 25th hour and the film for a while was also going to be called the 25th hour and then they took out the the because it sounds cooler well they they were waiting for the gritty reboot yeah whoa god what would a gritty reboot of this movie i was gonna say like what else what, what more do you want from me uh it would be i don't know the print of the movie before anyone sees it it is run through i don't know a sewer system something it's um, just about the russian gangster it's his it origin looks story. exactly like darren aronofsky's pie <laughs> you um, were not not as nice to pie on your letterboxd review as i uh as i wanted you to be there i like i mean i, I mean listen i, I think like it holds darren up Aronofsky. i think it holds up there is there's stuff about it that definitely holds up and is kind of wild. I can't really imagine a movie like that coming out today. But there's also a lot about it that's a little crunchy. Like it's unavoidably crunchy. It's a movie that was shot for five dollars. Well, sure, but like I don't know if I'm gonna hold that against it. You know what I mean? Like I mean, I, uh, well, I hold it against it in that it it makes the movie feel more like a time capsule than sure. a movie that you know sure. holds up sure 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 there's movies that do things like that like you think of blair witch that you know 
absolutely uh, feels just as, uh, you know. Well, Blair Witch, it was hard to avoid because, you know, it was real footage and black and white. And what are you going to do? Like, this was the footage that they dug up in the middle of the woods. And like, you can't people died. It's a true searching for that Blair Witch. Derek Barry doing the people died about Blair Witch Project is actually a really good idea. (laughs) Don't give that one away for free. That that feels like uh, something you can make some hay with. Yeah. Derek Barry reacting to the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, I would tweet that and it would be for like 10 people. Um. But they'd love it. Those ten people would follow you to the ends of the earth. They would understand it. It would, would be like the two of us and I don't know what other errant homosexuals would get it. Yeah. Listeners, we're here to talk about the 25th Hour, directed by the great Spike Lee, written by David Benioff based on his own book, starring Edward Norton, Rosario Dawson, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Barry Pepper, Anna Paquin, our fifth Anna Paquin. Yes. As you noted Second in a on. row, actually. <laughs> Whenever we do these second in a row, it truly... It's always an accident. It's except always an accident. For Naomi Watts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, except for Naomi Watts when we did the miniseries. Yeah. Um, and it truly just is like, oh, we didn't really think about that very well as soon as I start. I mean, I honestly, movie. like when we were making the planning of this, I don't look at A Walk on the Moon and 25th Hour back to back and think, ah, two Anna Paquin films. Right. We did do it once, I think, with Kate Winslet, where it was like she was the lead of both yeah. of those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, also, Brian Cox and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Yes. Tony Siragusa, open. also the late uh, Tony Siragusa. There's, there's a lot, actually, of... Uh, dead cast members in this movie philip seymour hoffman obviously tony siragusa just recently died he was a pro football player who spike lee saw on hard knocks the documentary series on hbo and thought he was so entertaining that he cast him in this movie and then patrice o'neill is in that one scene briefly as the bouncer at the club so there was a lot of i mean in a movie that's already kind of an elegy for things i was like wow yeah so sad probably one of those subtextual unintended things that mm. keeps giving this movie more and more power yeah. as uh, we grow with it. You know, I, okay, just because it came into my mind, the version that I rented of this movie looks fine. This movie needs a restoration. <laughs> like, I watched it on it's my... It's not a super available movie, and right. it's probably not going to get one, and it's probably not going to get better for this movie, because Disney owns it. We'll talk yeah. about it. It I watched it on a. I, I ripped my own DVD copy uh, years ago, but it was like a pretty basic, like first first generation DVD from the, you know, from the mid aughts. So, yeah, a restoration would not be uh, uncalled for. It's not a movie that's supposed to look digitally pristine, but right. You know, well, this is also just a movie that, in general, probably deserves to be celebrated and shined up as much as possible. Uh, perhaps you can do so with a 60-second plot description. Hey, I'll do my best. I'm sure I'll run out of time, but we'll see how it goes. All right. Joseph Reed, your 60-second plot description for 25th Hour starts now. All right. Montgomery Brogan is a New York City boy, born and raised, but 24 hours from now, he'll be headed upstate to begin a seven-year prison sentence for dealing drugs. The Russian mobster who he worked for wants to see him before he goes, which seems ominous. Meanwhile, Monty wants to have one last night of freedom with his friends Jacob and Francis, as well as his girlfriend, Naturelle, about whom Monty won't admit to himself how much he suspects she might have been the one to rat him out to the cops. We get digressions into the lives of Jacob, who is a high school teacher and can't stop uh, staring at a student, Anna Paquin, who isn't playing Lisa Cohen from Margaret, but she's not not playing her either. And Francis, who is a Wall Street asshole, only six 
years away from destroying the seconds. entire financial uh, system as we know it. The two end up arguing over whether they're ever going to see Monty again after he enters prison. This all converges that night at the nightclub where jailbait Paquin gets Jacob to sneak her in and he kisses her. Francis grossly accuses Naturel of ruining Monty's life and Monty can't stop wor- worrying about how he's going to survive prison looking as pretty as he does. Meanwhile, Nikolai the Russian mobster reveals to Mo- Monty that he that the guy he thought was his friend was really the guy who ratted him out and rather than kill him to prove how hard he can be, Monty watches his hands of the Russians entirely and then in the light of morning he begs Francis to beat the shit out of him so he'll look ugly enough to not be sexually assaulted in Otisville, I guess, and Francis tearfully obliges. The movie ends up with Monty's father driving him up the West Side Highway to surrender himself, but before they approach the off-ramp uh, upstate, he proposes that they drive west as far as they can go and spins out an alternative for Monty where he never looks back and just starts a new life in some desert town and we're left to linger on this fantasy as Monty leaves behind the row houses in Astoria, the penthouses on Park Avenue, the projects in the Bronx, the lofts in Soho, the tenements in Alphabet City, the brownstones in Park Slope, and the split levels in Staten Island, perhaps never to return. The end. That extra 32 seconds that it took you <laughs> to do that are your 25th hour. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I knew I was going over with that, but whatever, I indulged Perfectly myself. fine. You did so beautifully. Yeah. Thank you. All right. 25th hour. So, Not a super plotty movie, but uh, a lot of vibes. Lot I could maybe vibes. do with some of without some of the flashbacks, but beyond yes. that, yes, I think I think that's right. Although I'm glad that the flashbacks linger on Monty and Naturel because that is a relationship I care about in this movie more right. so than maybe any of the others. I think I don't necessarily. I wouldn't necessarily get rid of the digressions into Jacob and Francis's lives because I do feel like, especially in no. the way that Spike directs them, it feels like a whole picture of a moment in time and sort of a person's so, uh, social circle. And I think you do learn a little bit about Monty through Francis and through Jacob. Um I think the stuff with Anna Paquin is pretty cliche, unfortunately. The, you know, sad, horny professor lusting after his high school student. The stuff with Francis feels kind of like, you know, they cut scenes from Boiler Room. And yet, (laughs) I think they add to the whole a lot better. And I think you maybe don't get the impact of the scene with the two of them talking, uh, sort of with the, the... ground zero site in the background which is such an amazing scene i wouldn't lose that for anything and so if all of the rest of it is sort of of a piece with that i think fine well and see this is where i feel like there's kind of this divide between the script and the movie as it's directed because the script feels like small but like I think at all these opportunities, Spike Lee is saying, no, this is big picture. This is big canvas. This is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. more than what's on the page. And like the kind of idea is just expanding it so much. The stuff with Anna Paquin's character, I feel like is the thing that's pulling it back into the smallness of it. Like, I don't really know what that whole story adds to it i mean right. like i am not someone who is going to ask for less female characters sure something right. but i don't know i mean there maybe it's leaving a little bit on the table there where it's like she is the younger generation not that much younger than these characters by like maybe 10 15 years but right. like 
the sense of like, well, what does the future hold? Like that's, I think a lot of what this movie is like, like Mm -hmm. questioning spiritually and the idea of like the things she's chasing, like what her mindset is, uh, doesn't maybe set us up, uh, for an optimistic future. Um, but I think that's me extrapolating, not, something that's actually in the do we take any intentionality from the scene where she's trying to grub for a better grade and she sort of complains about her her classmate who got an a plus for writing about his dead grandmother because tragedy uh sells essentially do we feel like there's there's any kind of commentary being made in that or is that just sort of coincidental Mm, i'd have to think about that as that more because that's not a scene that really plays to me so maybe if it if it's effectively doing that it's subtextually and i've not ascribed it to that scene but lord knows i'll be watching this movie again at some point so i'll watch out for that um it's interesting to sort of get into i I talked about it a little bit the the road that this movie took to getting made where i watched a clip of uh, Spike Lee and Edward Norton on Charlie Rose actually before we recorded this. And it's interesting watching the two of them. Uh, Norton has such a reputation for being a meddler and being sort of difficult on set. They seem to have gotten along very well. They're both very sort of complimentary of each other. And I don't know. I just feel like it's an interesting, uh, it sounds like, it feels like this movie had been in development before Spike Lee got to it, which mm-hmm. is maybe an outlier in how he works. You know what I mean? Because he has written so many of his own screenplays and this is obviously something that he's coming to that is not from him, but it sounds like he and Benioff had a lot of, you know, collaboration together. And I mean, it also sounds like a lot of trust was put in, Spike Lee as an auteur too. That's my that was my uh immediate feeling about Edward Norton is like, yes, he's known as those things, and we'll talk about Edward Norton and we'll talk about his reputation too. Yeah. Uh he's known as those things unless it is a director he respects. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like it, it's clear that he respected Spike Lee. Um, oh, one of the other things in that Charlie Rose interview before I forget too, they talk about towards the end like what are you working on next? And Edward Norton's like, "Yeah, I'm working on a screenplay adaptation for this book Motherless Brooklyn." Which so okay, this is in like take almost 20 years. Early 2003 and it's funny because uh Spike Lee at hearing the title Motherless Brooklyn like perks up his ears and he's like, "What's that called? What's that? What's it about? Like what's going on?" <laughs> and so I was I it was interesting to see that just like just from the those you probably couldn't find a title more uh, apt to pique uh, Spike Lee's interest <laughs> than Motherless Brooklyn. I'm not sure whether once he well, you know, I mean, if a- only it had uh, piqued his interest more because Spike Lee would have definitely made a better movie than Edward Norton ultimately did. This is only our second Edward Norton movie. We've only ever done The Painted Veil otherwise, but I was going through his filmography. We have so many options to do Edward Norton movies, Motherless Brooklyn being one of them. Oh, I can't imagine. I, I mean, sure, yes, but sitting through that movie again oh boy. i've only um, i've never seen it and i didn't see it because i was like i'm only gonna watch that movie once and it'll it's be for so long it's never very good yeah. it, it, it we'll do that movie eventually and we yeah. can talk about it then yeah. um the thing though is like it, we have options to talk about edward norton 
there's not a lot of movies, especially at this point in his career. It's almost interesting that there's more movies. There's more movies recently. Yeah, in the past decade, which is not what you would think based on like his uh, prominence in the culture. Yeah. But like, uh, it's really striking. And this, because this was maybe not how I remembered him, but it is true that Edward Norton came on as like a prestige actor, pretty hot and heavy. Oh, yeah. Early his... on. He had that big first year where he's in three movies within the awards race. Probably a second place for Primal Fear. Which well, he won the Golden Globe, so yeah, I feel like I would I would be pretty confident in saying he was probably second place for Primal. And Fear. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head which critics awards he'd won, but he'd won some like prominent ones if I remember correctly. Well, I will tell you in a second, just as soon as I, I feel I like it might be like Los Angeles or something. I mean, he's but tremendous he... in that movie. It's a very kind of it's you can. It's easy to chalk that role up to a gimmick because there's a big reveal because with of it the after. Twist, yeah. Um, let's see. He was nominated for BAFTA, um, won Boston Society of Film Critics, nominated for Critics' Choice, uh, won Most Promising Actor at Chicago Film Critics, and nominated for Supporting Actor. Um, as we go down, he won the Golden Globe, as I mentioned. Kansas City film critics. Uh, yeah, Los Angeles film critics gave him uh, best supporting actor for all three of those performances. Everyone says I love you, Primal Fear, The People versus Larry Flint. Everyone says I love you, not Oscar nominated, but like it was a Golden Globes player. Yeah, and he was runner up at National Society, also, I should say. Yeah. So, yeah. Which is significant. Yes. I think um, he's tremendous in that movie. I think that is a cable TV staple of mine that is a movie every time i see it on cable i will watch it it is it gave tnt their identity it is it's it's lurid legal drama done to a t and the cast richard gear laura linney, laura linney alfrey woodard uh andre brower maura tierney um john mahoney who the hell else is in this movie it's just it's so well cast and everybody's doing like laura linney is the perfect rival district attorney. Alfrey Woodard is the <laughs> perfect sort of uh, perturbed judge. John Mahoney is the perfect um, politico with an agenda. Like everybody's doing their jobs perfectly in that movie. I really, really, it's junk, but it's such good junk. I really think it's fantastic. Well, and I think the reason why I feel so kind of, not taken aback, but the. The thing of Edward Norton coming on basically hot and heavy in his career, mm-hmm. aside from that being his first on-screen jobs. But then yeah. essentially his follow-up to that year is two years later where you have Rounders, which is very prominent, ultimately kind of a disappointment. Um, but um, almost immediately begins to amass a... A I, cult. I don't want. I don't, don't even want to say cult because it's so yeah. mainstreamy to call it cult feels weird. But like a, a second... A second wind, essentially. An army of defenders, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a good Um, and fun movie, too, I will say, with a fantastic cast. uh, Yes. And then also his second nomination for American History X, which he is safely fifth place. Well, Um, that nomination kind of came out of nowhere. That movie had been left for dead for a few reasons. The director mm -hmm. kind of disavowed it because of... um, 
problems. A lot of Norton's meddling. Right, right, right. And so no uh, people had kind of that had a lot of buzz early on and then people Mm -hmm. had kind of given up on it and then nomination morning happens and he gets the surprise nomination at the expense of it should be said jim carrey for the truman show who everybody expected was going to get nominated and i like both of those performances a lot and would have liked both of them to be nominated but um it said a lot about how respected he was i thought even with this sort of burgeoning reputation for being a little bit difficult of an asshole um well but i mean like certainly a a level of respect because i think he basically campaigned for himself for that role like i don't know if he had that's why he and salma hayek uh, got together because they they both knew that they saw in each other (laughs) the instinct to campaign for them for themselves yeah that's right because they are both sitting stone-faced next to each other during that best actor reel uh before roberto benini um um this that best actor race is really interesting because there is a lot at play and very very competitive i mean we've talked about it a lot yeah you could probably say tom hanks is fourth but like right he kind of basically is taking the place of that entire massive ensemble in what was the biggest movie of the year right saving private ryan yep nick nolte was such a hot contender he probably basically is why Coburn won right it's yeah. a surprise win Nolte uh, not winning in best actor sort of gets transferred by the uh transitive onto property Coburn. onto James Coburn and McKellen uh, was the one looking back I feel like if we could all do it over again I think we'd all probably give that to McKellen for Gods and Monsters absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah because he may not be nominated again and yeah, that was his that was his moment that was the moment we didn't know it then. Sometimes when your first nomination is your moment, that's when the Oscars will miss you. And mm-hmm. it's too bad that you can't have that kind of retrospect because it was right there. It was, as Meryl says in the hours, that was happiness in that moment. <laughs> and we had it. Oh. Uh, yeah. No, uh, released in the same week as 25th Hour, The Hours. The 25th yeah. Hours. C- can you imagine the mashup of those two movies? <laughs> it's weird that I've never done that. Um, also, we should say, uh, the next year after American History X was Fight Club, which yes, I think he's tremendous in. Again, a movie with a twisty element, sort of a little parallel to Primal Fear. He kind a movie of, he doesn't meddle in because he respects his to David Fincher, right? <laughs> Uh, he then directs himself in Keeping the Faith, a movie that did I not like. do a ton at the time, but a lot of people really like it. It's very charming. What it's a nice movie. Uh, it is a movie about going to see a movie at the Lincoln Square Movie Theater, as far as I'm concerned. I feel like <laughs> just a very long scene uh, happens at the popcorn stand for... Uh, what we're missing at the movies today is movies where people go to the movies. Yes. Uh, he did the score in 2001. Am I mistaken in thinking that that was a movie that also had a lot of behind the scenes rigmarole? It's a Frank Oz movie, and I feel like Frank Oz movies always <sighs> tend to have this kind of. Yes, I know that thing. there there is some uh, scuttlebutt about that movie. Couldn't tell you what it is, but like that was also another movie that was a disappointment because it's like 
Edward Norton, De Niro, but also Brando. That was the, they was sold, the hook on that movie was the actors of three subsequent generations, right? It was right. Brando and then De Niro and then Norton was supposed to be the next. I think we can all agree Edward Norton probably came up with that hook himself because he would love you to believe he is the actor of his generation. But, but I also feel like the critical assessment at the time that did not feel far off, that felt like Edward Norton felt like your actor's actor at that moment, right? In a way that De Niro always did as well. Right. Uh, what else do we have for him? Oh, so the, after the score is essentially this onslaught in 2002, 25th hour, <laughs> he's in Frida briefly playing Nelson Rockefeller. Interestingly, the same governor whose, uh, whose recidivism laws uh, or whatever drug laws rather ends up, the reason why Montgomery Brogan is getting seven years in Otisville. So it all comes back around. Uh, he's also cast as Will Graham in Red Dragon, Brett Ratner's uh, Hannibal Lecter movie. And he's also in Death to Smoochie. That's a real interesting... He's the titular Smoochie. Yeah, that's a real I've interesting I've seen te- Death to Smoochie, and I really want to. I remember... I saw it at the time. I remember, as I feel like with all Danny DeVito movies, watching it and being like... <laughs> That's a little much. Like, I always feel like the tone of it... Don't you dare besmirch Matilda. I've never seen Matilda in any form. Excellent Danny DeVito film. I've never seen the movie or the musical Matilda. I always feel like Danny DeVito movies, even like Throw Mama from the Train and whatnot, I'm always just like, it's a little bit more misanthropic than I'm looking for in a movie. (laughs) Um, And then the rest of the aughts and into the 2010s, it becomes a lot less defined a career. I don't know how you can tr- go the through line from the Italian job, Kingdom of Heaven, Down in the Valley, The Painted Veil. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven, where he's just, I'm pretty sure, just voiceover. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the Kingdom of Heaven fans face. will yell at me. If well, there's he also was two cuts. Set. There's also two cuts to that, and I don't remember which one I've seen. So maybe in the extended <laughs> both five hours long. Maybe in the the longer cut, you do see his face, but in the cut that I saw, which was the shorter one, um, I didn't. Um, Wasn't he also kind of an asshole about the Italian job? Like saying in interviews, he only did that movie for money. <laughs> I can't imagine that him and Mark Wahlberg sort of vying for. Uh, prominence in a movie would go well. Would go well. That was an F. Gary Gray. I movie. could have stopped 9-11 Mark Wahlberg. Right, 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 right. And 25th hour Edward Norton. Uh, should I watch the Italian job? It seems like it could be fun. It's it does. It's it should be more fun than it is, but as it stands, mm. it's pretty okay. It's okay. Um It's a good roller coaster at King's Island, though I think they've changed the name. But so Norton keeps working steadily but again the career just doesn't feel like it has the coherence that you would expect from somebody who was on that de niro track of becoming of being the um the actor of his generation he's not oscar nominated again until all the way in 2014 with birdman which felt like um a little bit of a comeback nomination, even though he hadn't really gone away. The tenor of it away. was a little bit like, where has he been? But he hadn't gone away. It was just, he right. hadn't been in a ton of movies that people talked about very much. Even in yeah. movies that were seen very much, he's in like the redheaded stepchild Marvel movie, right? He's in The Incredible Hulk, the one that nobody wants to talk about. Um, So, yeah. He's an interesting... I've never felt like I've... 
I think a lot of people sort of took the stories about him being an asshole on set and, you know, decided he was an asshole and sort of wrote him off. I feel like stories are also now two decades old well and that's all like today could be a different story he probably is an incredibly difficult artist and and a pain in the ass more than maybe like an uh like a yelly shouty abusive person bad guy right um so probably high on his own supply and and very very thinks very highly of himself as an actor but I still will appreciate I think he's actually fit in pretty well into the uh Wes Anderson universe. His temperament 100%. way like way more than I would have expected. If you would have said um Edward he's Norton funny in those movies. You know what else he's funny in speaking of uh of Wes Anderson? He hosted Saturday Night Live around um twenty like sometime after he had done Moonrise Kingdom. And they did a sketch that was essentially a home invasion horror movie as directed by Wes Anderson. From the twisted mind of Wes Anderson, it's the midnight coterie of sinister intruders, starring Owen Wilson as a man in danger. Wow, what the heck? There's a bunch of crazy people standing in our yard. Hey, hon, I think we're about to get murdered. And his terrified wife, Gwyneth Paltrow. You don't say. And he's essentially playing Owen Wilson in it. And he's so funny in it. He actually, his SNL was like strangely like low-key pretty good. And I remember after that being like, oh, like this is, you know, I had a new, a different appreciation for him after that. I also think he's quite good in 25th Hour to sort of bring it back to the movie. My goodness. This is my holdup with Edward Norton, especially people who have the reputation that he has is like, it can often be you're giving a very Edward Norton performance. And it's like, he knows what boxes to stay in and how to deliver a certain type of monologue. This movie, I actually feel like he's, I hate, kind of using the word authentic but his vulnerability feels authentic in this movie it does it feels like he's you know putting something on the line with this movie and not just being one of those park and bark actors that he can be sometimes um the most difficult thing to swallow in this movie and i genuinely am not intending any kind of wordplay here so please um (laughs) is this idea how much of the plot of this movie hinges on monty's certainty and fear that he's, he's gonna get beat up he's in prison. too pretty not to get not just beat up but like sexually assaulted like he's pretty certain right. that he's gonna get sexually assaulted in prison for seven years because he's this like essentially like pretty white boy and it's one of those things where as like there's probably some validity to that in a really sort of like dark truths of the world kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure prison Mm -hmm. is not fun. And, but it, as an audience member, you're like, it feels like an odd thing to hang your plot on this idea that like, I'm just too pretty for prison. This is a real problem. And he does a very, very, very good job of selling that to me as an audience member in a way that I would have felt real incredulous about it otherwise. 
Well, I mean, it's it still... skirts a line of potentially being, uh, you know, uh, offensive, right? But I I do think there's something to the performance that it's like it's not just that; it's about the hell he knows he's going to enter. Yeah, um, it's being funneled through this one observation, but like, yeah, yeah in his performance. You see more wheels turning than words being said, you yeah. know, of like what he's saying he's afraid of, um, yeah. which is which is smart. And I, you know, um, it's one of my things about like, that's probably not on the page. Um, right. But it's, you know, the the smart team behind this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Edward Norton's good in this movie. This is probably my favorite Edward Norton performance. I want to. Uh, I want to rewatch Keeping the Faith because it's been years since I've seen it, but mm-hmm. I also remember really liking him in that movie. Yeah. And I've also had the impulse to watch Birdman. I know a lot of that probably made a lot of listeners throw up in their mouth. <laughs> I like Birdman quite a bit. Like I had a uh, real journey with Birdman. I I appreciated a lot of it. So much of it sticks in my craw that I'm not really uh positioned to grant it a whole lot of grace. And then on top of that for it to sort of stomp its way towards the Oscar wins that it did, including screenplay, which I was like, Um, but I do probably owe it a rewatch as well. I have fun with it. I think it's funny. I I'm fully uh, able to grant that that is a, you know, that is a legitimate. The Lindsay Duncan of it all annoys people, but I think Lindsay Duncan in her performance is delicious. Sure, but to what to what yeah, end? I hate say I hate saying that. I I'm like my thing is like stop comparing movies to food. <laughs> and like delicious is the word that's driving me crazy. Yeah, uh, eat before you come on this podcast, Chris. Next time, don't, you know when they say like don't go grocery shopping on an empty stomach. Like don't podcast on an empty stomach. Your metaphors will suffer. Um, I guess let's let's not get too far ahead of things before we talk about Spike Lee, though, because yes. this is our first Spike Lee movie, and he and the Oscars have a really fascinating history of them getting it and them not getting it, and it's it's worth sort of delving into. Obviously, the the do the right thing stuff has been documented extensively i feel like if if the oscars as an entity as a sort of anthropomorphized entity could go back in time and change one thing about themselves they would go back to 1989 and nominate that movie for best picture and best director because they have caught no end of incredibly justified grief for that short sight especially in the same year as driving miss daisy like you talk about um, what's the line in Invisible Man where he's a pioneer in the field of optics? <laughs> a disaster of unparalleled proportions in the field of optics was a snubbing Do the Right Thing the same year that you give Driving Miss Daisy your Best Picture Award. I mean, like, not to jump ahead, but then in the year of his actual Oscar success is the year of Green Book. But it would be like Green Book... And then also snubbing Black Klansmen. You know what I mean? Uh, doing right. Green Book, and yet at the same time... Not nominating Black Klansmen. Yeah, I mean, that's the right. year he wins, so it's like... And he ultimately, I think, comes out the better during that year. He gets to, like, throw some 
some shade at Green Book during the year. What does it say? What was the one interview he gave where he was like, what did they say? You're for, uh, the, the interviewer was from England. Is there something about Green Book that offends you? This is what I'm trying to get to. Offend? Are you British? Yeah. Are you British? I am. Let me give you a British answer. It was my cup of tea. <laughs> my cup of tea and he goes you're from england right what did they say in england it wasn't my cup of tea and then he like cracks <laughs> so good he cracks so the good. hell up at how like he just made himself laugh it's so endearing he was so well, much fun that whole year uh, well i mean here's the thing about spike lee i think he's not someone who has necessarily cared about the oscars oh. and probably because he got burned so early I it's just not something uh, i mean i don't think he's making movies that or has often made movies that have like gone for it though there's some that are like if you watch crooklyn now you're like this is ridiculous that this doesn't have like 12 oscar nominations like and i i hate to be one of those people that are like well why wasn't that but like you watch crooklyn and it's like crooklyn is maybe my favorite film you are you are correct in saying that spike lee has never made a movie with the intent to court the Oscars, but I think right. every time he's made a movie and the Oscars have not recognized it, he's taken it personally. And I, I like when Four Little Girls gets overlooked, when Do the Right Thing gets overlooked, when, you know what I mean? All of this stuff, I think, and I, you could see that in the kind of release. I think he, for as much as the Oscars had burned him, he saw great conquest in finally getting to have that moment you saw it in his governor's award speech which was the year before that how long before yes yeah um so like yeah i don't think he's making crooklyn for the oscars i don't think he's making red hook summer for the oscars and yet i think and you know rightly so he is he is a filmmaker with a healthy ego but it's not an unjustified ego and i think every time and especially the ones where he gets close. Denzel Washington losing Best Actor for Malcolm X to Al Pacino for Son of a Woman, Spike Lee took personally. You know what I mean? Uh, do, uh, Driving Miss Daisy winning Best Picture, Spike Lee took personally. And not for, you know, with good reason, I would say. So, with good reason. I mean, in talking about, like, him and Edward Norton, like, I love an artist with an ego. I think Spike Lee's ego absolutely adds to his films and like that's what i want yeah uh from a filmmaker um but like i think <laughs> he's proven very justified in you know his frustrations and what uh why he's taking some of those things as you say personally yeah and uh i think when he actually won the screenplay oscar for black klansman it's also in this kind of riding a wave of appreciation for Spike Lee and the culture too, because like he was making these very small movies that not a lot of people saw, not a lot of people liked like the sweet blood of Jesus or she hate me. Yeah. Um, in that, like he was focusing on like do trying out like a lot of stuff with digital and, uh, you know, still make it, like I'm someone who likes Chirac. I know a lot of people don't care for that movie. I, I like. It. I had my problems with it. Yeah. Um, but like he's he kept doing a certain level of experimentation, and then when uh, there there's also Inside Man in there too, which is 
Could maybe. When you watch it, not anonymous right. in terms of like it doesn't not feel like a Spike Lee movie. Right. But like even at the time when it came out, it's his biggest box office success he's ever had. But like yeah. it didn't feel promoted like a Spike Lee movie. It felt promoted like a Denzel Washington movie. Yes. Yes. Um of all of the Spike Lee movies that I've seen, and I haven't seen all of them. Uh, at some point I will have seen all of them. I'll work my way through that. Same. I'm missing like two or three, uh, not counting the documentaries. But. Oh, I'm missing more than that, but I won't get into it. Um, of the ones I've seen, I only, th- I think he's only made one out outright bad one. And that's old boy. Like that's the only oh, one yeah. where I was yeah. like, that's, that's a failure. I, that's, I don't, I don't rate that one, but otherwise even the ones that don't work, there is He's always doing something interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Apparently the next movie he wants to make is a musical. I cannot fucking wait for it because I <sighs> think that Spike Lee like this is this is where I get on my soapbox, excuse me, for like three minutes here. <laughs> Spike Lee, I think, has probably the greatest understanding of how music works in cinema than anyone in the fucking business. Yeah. If you watch his filming of American Utopia, and I would say even more so his capturing of Passing Strange, he does like filmed theater, which people tend to like write off and almost for good reason, because usually it's people just filming whatever was on the stage. He actually approaches it with his own cinematic point of view Mm -hmm. in a way that like I cannot, I cannot praise, uh, his version of passing strange enough. I know that it, that is a very niche thing to say because like no one has seen that, but like it's incredible. Um, yeah. And American Utopia got a ton of praise uh, two years ago for doing exactly that. So I and think passing strange is even better <laughs> than what he did with American Utopia. So I hope people seek it out. Yeah. Um, he also does music within his non- you know, non-theatrical ventures really well, Mm -hmm. right? He's always integrated music very, very skillfully. So I guess this is where we're going to segue into the Terrence Blanchard of it all. Oh my God. One of my favorite movie scores of the 21st century. It's incredibly powerful. When I talk about that, uh, when I talk about loving the more operatic moments of this movie, Terrence Blanchard is the, star and featured performer of those moments it's and this is a movie that front loads like it from its opening moments from those opening credits the tribute in light uh, which was this installation of 88 searchlights projected straight up into the air to sort of uh, memorialize the twin towers after they were gone um the credits sort of move around the city in different angles at the tribute all the while Terrence Blanchard's score is playing and it talk about a mood setter just absolutely Mm -hmm. um there is there's drama to the score there is mournfulness there is a sense of occasion um it's incredible there are I mean it is not not um riffing or borrowing or recontextualizing a certain level of Americana musicality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it, with a, like, obviously a dark tone to it. But it's tremendous. It was not nominated for an Oscar, which is why we get to have this discussion here on our lovely podcast. Um, but, like, talk about an injustice. Although, we've maybe talked about this before. The score, the original score 
race in 2002. This is what is, I was going to say. Is all killer, no filler. Like there. I mean, in a year of all killer, no filler, this is probably still safely my favorite score of this year. Yes, with the caveat that you know how much... No, I can't even say that because I genuinely feel like Thomas Newman's Road to Perdition score is the best score he's ever done. And Thomas Newman is maybe my favorite film composer. So... Oh, that's was so Thomas Newman say. nominated for his score? Because I don't think he was. Yeah, he was. Fr- I just so, rewatched that movie. Uh, Frida wins. I know you were too mean to that one too. Frida wins. I was not too mean. <laughs> you were. You were a little too mean. You're a little. Um, you're a little glib. You're a little glib. It's it. a dry movie. I like dry movies. <laughs> it's a good movie. Um, Frida wins for Elliot Goldenthal. A thing that became an inevitability by the end of that season. But I remember mm-hmm. when Frida won the Golden Globe for score, I was like, huh, that's an odd choice. And then uh, he follows it up with the Oscar win. Catch Me If You Can, which is John Williams's best score in the last 20 years. Like, he really, for a composer who really had started to rest on his laurels and repeat himself and revisit old themes and whatever, there's a, there's a spryness to his Catch Me If You Can score that I find tremendous. Mm-hmm. We'll see how he theoretically says goodbye with the Fablemans. We will see. In that we've heard that several movies are John Williams's retirement score. <laughs> yes. Elmer Bernstein is nominated for Far From Heaven. Classic, pastiche, back. There was an assignment there, and uh, he nailed it. Philip Glass for the hours. Plinky, 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 plink. Um, <laughs> I love it so much. And as I said, Thomas Newman for Road to Perdition, which is Essentially, Sam Mendes got the band back together after American Beauty. Sam Mendes, Conrad Hall, uh, and and Thomas Newman to essentially be the core of Road to Perdition after American Beauty. Newman was so highly praised for his American Beauty score, and that was uh, a score that was copied a lot, including by him. Uh, I think Road to Perdition bests it by a good manner. Um, anyway... Those are your Oscar nominees. At the Golden Globes, 25th Hour was nominated, and um, Rabbit Proof Fence, the Peter Gabriel score for Rabbit Proof Fence, were nominated instead of Road to Perdition and Catch Me If You Can. And then at the World Soundtrack Awards, uh, it's essentially the same lineup as the Oscars, except instead of Road to Perdition, it's Howard Shore for Gangs of New York. And I just sort of jotted down a couple others that year that I thought were notable. Um, Thomas Newman again for White Oleander, even if that is even like when I talk about him ripping even off even more of a ripoff of American Beauty. Yes, but I still think it's very pretty. Howard Shore with Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers, which he had just won. He won for Fellowship of the Ring, right? You know, one. I always forget him, and then Andrew Lesney as cinematography. I think they like traded off like one, one, one year and then one, one the next year. And then they both won uh, in the sweep. It, but anyway, interesting. Well, it wouldn't have won in Oh three because Andrew Lesney wouldn't have, because it wasn't nominated in Oh three. Okay. Give me a second then. And I will look this. Cause up. famously return of the King didn't get that cinematography nomination. That's right. Okay. So Howard Shore wins for fellowship of the ring is not nominated for uh, Two Towers, and then wins again for Return of the King. Cinematography in that span 
as I vamp, as I scroll and vamp. Cinematography. <laughs> Andrew, Le- all right, yeah. Song. So Andrew Lesney, the cinematographer, won for Fellowship of the Ring, was not nominated then in either of the two sequels, Two Towers or The Return of the King. Which do you think that's just the cinematography branch took for granted that it would be nominated, or were they maybe feeling like they were looking at too many pixels? Has he ever been nominated since then? He might just be like not part of their like. I think club. that's his only nomination was Fellowship of the Ring. So maybe they were like, "Listen, we've got some." Uh, we don't know her. We've we've got some Ed Lockman and Michael Ballhaus, uh, uh, you know, it's movies to to throw nominations <laughs> to. So I don't know. It's an interesting it's an interesting note to Terrence make. Terrence Blanchard, though, what a fucking career! So many bangers. Um, especially within the work of Spike Lee he's he gets the it's it's shocking that his first nomination was with Black Klansman and he gets the nomination also for To Five Bloods which is I mean like I don't want to say why we can't talk about To Five Bloods because To Five Bloods got fucking screwed oh yeah year yeah in the pandemic year when it's like and the reason why is because netflix was just throwing so much shit at the wall they never really gave that movie its own due Mm -hmm. which like it could have been Spike Lee's Oscar. Like, yeah. it's not my favorite. I wouldn't even put it, like, towards my top five favorite Spike Lee movies. But, like... No, I agree. It, the foundation was there, and they entirely flubbed that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Terrence Blanchard is... One of those, like, more instrumental, no pun intended, to... us. Uh, I think th- you do mean some of these puns. Maybe sure. subconsciously I do. But, like for the you know the greatness of a lot of these spike lee movies it's right there you know what i mean it's right Mm -hmm. it's it's so uh, malcolm x and crooklyn and you know uh, four little girls and all of this stuff summer of sam it's it's really tremendous what are some of his more recent ones besides oh he's doing the score for the woman king that sounds cool that's why when i saw that i was like oh Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Not that like I'm not excited for that movie, but like I still don't that trailer that trailer gonna... so puzzled me that I'm still sort of working out what I think this movie is going to be. And part of that is fun because it's like this could be anything. Um yeah. I I I don't know. It could be good. This is like it the could be not Don't good. Worry Darling trailer, which feels like it's giving you everything of what the movie is going to be. Yes, but I'm also excited for that one, too. <laughs> I feel like I'm the only one at this point who is leaving open the possibility that it could be good. Um, uh, and then there's also the Tar trailer, which gives you quite literally nothing but sweaty Kate Blanchett, and that's all you need. <laughs> well, and all you really expect, too, because of uh, that's that's Todd Field's sort of thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, Terrence Blanchard, fucking rules. The sc- score for 25th Hour, fucking rules. 2002 in original score, fucking rules. The best category uh, of my lifetime, probably. And it and it did not have enough room for all of the best ones. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Do you want to talk about anyone else in the cast? I want to talk about Brian Cox. <laughs> Please, please. One I think of, maybe one of my favorite subjects. Brian Cox. It's our third. It's third. Zodiac, Zodiac and Running with and Scissors. Running with Scissors. Yeah. This was the year I talk about all the time, where Brian Cox, in the same 
fall is in the span of like October to December is in the ring for one scene and blows the doors off the place (laughs) and literally like electrocutes himself to death and the audience goes with him. You know what I mean? It's such a good scene. And again, the line deliveries in all of these, and I'm not going to do it, but like my wife was never supposed to have a child is delivered with the (laughs) depths of his like shoe tops. It's, it's amazing. Um, Then he's in Spike Jones's adaptation Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones's adaptation for again one scene, blows the doors off the place. Like I've watched the Robert McKee scene in adaptation a hundred times by now. It's so fucking good. And then in Twenty Fifth Hour, he ups the ante and decides, "Hey, I'm going to be in two scenes and blow the doors <laughs> off the place and absolutely like leave you in tatters and tears and whatnot." And it's like. What an amazing year to be able to sort of, and he was somebody, he had gotten some critics love for LIE and he had been in, he had been in movies. It's not like he hadn't been in movies. He had been in a lot of movies, but he was not somebody who people knew by name until LIE. And that was even just with like the indie crowd. Right. Mm -hmm. And because of what that movie was and what its subject matter was. Right. And so ne- I've never seen it. Have you seen it? LIE? Yeah. Uh, okay. Maybe five or six years ago or whatever. It's heavy. Okay. It's like it's, it's not super available, too. So that's not super surprising. Not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you would think it would get some level of reassessment because of succession. Yeah. Speaking of which, we are recording this right before the Emmy, or we're, this will drop right before the Emmys. Yeah, and yeah. I really need him to. Win. Obviously, the big Brian Cox thing from the early part of his career is he played Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter in Michael Mann's Manhunter, the level of which how, how much that movie did or did not sort of sink into the public consciousness is tough to gauge because so much of it is sort of after the silence of the lambs, people going back and being like, Mm -hmm. ah, ha ha Michael Mann made Manhunter. You know, the, you know how the Michael Mann fans do. They will never (laughs) miss an opportunity to remind you that he did something or, or, you know, Uh, newest, most annoying fan base. Don't come after me. (laughs) God bless them. I know many of them. I think they're good people, but holy shit, y'all. No, no, no. The, 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 the standum. It's different. The, the the individuals you're thinking of are not like the standum. The standum. The standum is, touches, everything the light touches turns to standum sometimes with the Michael Mann people though. Like, I, uh, honestly. Um, whatever. I'm annoying about a lot of things. So like, I get it. Um, one of my favorite early Brian Cox. And when I say early, I mean, before this, you know, uh, reassessment in 2002 or whatever, he's in the long kiss. Goodnight. I've talked about this before. He shows up for a couple of scenes. He, um, he admonishes a dog for licking its asshole. And then he calls, uh, Gina Davis says that she's showed up, um, quite a X number of years later and a good deal frumpier. And it's again, it's that line delivery, right? There is something about that theater trained sort of line delivery that uh, kills. He's in Rushmore. You don't know what you're going to get with Brian Cox. Is he going to make you crumble to ash or is he going to give you a hug? Yeah. Like the, the type of life restoring hug that we all need. Yeah. He's in Rushmore. Speaking of Wes Anderson, uh, 
Uh, he's in a movie we haven't talked about, but could. He's in that movie Super Troopers that I never saw, but it was the Broken Lizard uh, folk. And then I made it five minutes into Super Troopers, and I was out. <laughs> and then so oh, also in two thousand two, besides the three movies that I talked, he's also in The Born Identity uh, yes. as one of the um, what's the what's the super secret organization there? Treadstone, right? Uh, something is maybe Treadstone the Born a tire company together if i'm wrong about treadstone somebody yell at me i will much i will much happier take people yelling at me about the Bourne movies than about michael Mann. um <laughs> and yeah and so then from then on he becomes like a popular choice to cast as a heavy in x-men 2 in troy in um top tier bureaucrat yeah he's like yes like often sinister bureaucrat but like he works a lot so, and then he starts to, like, take these parts that are on the surface, typical bureaucrat or whatever, but, like, is weirder. His Zodiac character is a little, is whatever, is very uh, egomaniacal and, and... Kind of a dandy. Yeah. And he's funny. He shows up on Deadwood as a as the leader of this theater troupe, who is kind of a dandy again a little bit. And... um I don't know. He's just a tremendous actor. I love that Succession is finally giving the great, greater, grander public an appreciation of him, but like always one of my faves. He's so Actually, good in 25th Hour. Holy shit. Chris, talk about how good he is in 25th Hour. <laughs> He's amazing in 25th Hour. He is everyone's daddy. Um, like truly the quintessential Irish bar owner. Right. He's not even Irish, is he? Yeah. Brian Cox, I thought, was well. Oh, I thought you meant the character. Um, uh, or is he a Scotsman? Hold on. Please hold. Brian Cox, the illustrious actor of stage and screen, was born in Scotland. Yeah, he's Scottish. The quintessential uh, man you just want to have a pint with. Mm-hmm. Um. But then, like, that, the delivery of that monologue is so not unaffected, but unsentimental towards the way, in a way that, like, only, like, Dad Brian Cox can, like, really fully destroy you by not being sentimental about it. There are ways to have played this character as overbearing or overly harsh in his delivery and demeanor or whatever, Mm-hmm. There is an essential kindness to this man, an essential um, sort of soft regret to this guy that is so important to where this movie ends up. And especially like tonally, because like yeah. you can imagine uh, who are maybe some of his like contemporaries, people that would probably ring it out for too much that would sentimentalize it in a way that would be ultimately less effective and ultimately less uh, Charles Durning or something yeah 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 or like I was even thinking of like a Cranston or something because, oh well like, he would have been much he was younger made today then, could be yeah, Cranston yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know it just like very appropriately measured to a way that makes it the most effective yeah. and I don't know. There's something about that monologue that's like very attached to legacy. Like what we want for our future mm-hmm. is also 
what came before us, what will come after us type of thing that, like, I think Brian Cox brings a lot of gravity to. Um, yeah. You just cast Brian Cox and half the work is done in this role. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's really tremendous. I think even though he's not in this movie a ton, if this movie had been appreciated on the level that we maybe think it deserved to be, that is a very deserving supporting actor nomination if you were to to get it. Well, and also if it was appreciated on the level that we both think it should have been, Brian Cox probably would be playing these succession tier roles a lot earlier than like, you know, the slew of blue bureaucrats. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um what did you think of Rosario Dawson in this movie? I love Rosario Dawson, like period point blank. Yeah. Um, I think she's great in this specifically, though. I mean, it's not a, a particularly well or interestingly written character, but like she brings I think a lot one of the reasons it. she does because like I think Rosario Dawson is one of those performers who is underrated because. I mean, bare minimum, what she's going to bring to a role is a level of believability, like you are watching a real and fully fleshed out person, even though I think often she's been saddled with parts like this that are not developed as much on the page. But, like, she's always a performer you believe every word out of her mouth. And, like, yeah. that is... <laughs> that accounts for more than it sounds like it accounts for. Spike Lee is also a very uh, loyal filmmaker goes back to the well mm-hmm. of his old cast members a lot her big breakout role was in he got game in 1998 i know she was also in kids but he got game <laughs> we don't talk about kids <laughs> well and also like she's in kids chloe seven years in kids and like i guess if anyone's going to be seen as a breakout from kids it would be chloe seven because i feel like people tracked her career from then whereas with Rosario Dawson, it was more like, oh, this girl who's in He Got Game, remember she was also mm. in Kids. Um, and then after He Got Game, she sort of, there's a little bit of a struggle to find uh, a place for her. She's in Josie mm-hmm. and the Pussycats, of course. Underrated movie. Great movie. Fantastic movie. Um, but it's not till 2002, she's in 25th Hour. I mean, it's not all great for her because she's also in Adventures in Pluto Nash. Um, but she's in 25th Hour, which she's great in. She's in Men in Black 2, which makes a lot of money. And then it moves from there. And she's sort of, it's the steady raising of a profile, Shattered Glass, The Rundown, Alexander, Sin City, Rent, of course, then in 2005. So Problematic fave, Trance. Yes! I love that you will bring up Trance. As often as possible. I don't know why I like that movie. Uh, I don't know. She's tremendous in it, doing some real bonkers shit. (laughs) She's been doing a lot of her best work and sort of her more satisfying work has been lately on television. She was in a show called Briar Patch in uh, late 20-teens that... I didn't love, but she was the lead in and she was good in. She's got her Star Wars series coming up. She was in Dope Sick, which was a huge, big success. I still haven't watched that. I haven't either. It's one of those things where the subject matter of it feels so depressing. Like, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like it's a cop out to do that. But um, 
whatever. She was also in all those Netflix uh, Marvel shows playing uh, Claire Temple, uh, Daredevil, and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and all of that. Movie-wise, I need somebody to recognize how great she is and start giving her better roles. The fact that like the three most recent movies on her uh, Wikipedia page in terms of film are Space Jam A New Legacy, the upcoming Clerks 3, and the upcoming Haunted Mansion movie, which didn't we already do a Haunted Mansion movie? Yeah, the Eddie Murphy Haunted Mansion movie. Okay, well, Justin so, Simeon like, is doing it again, and I love Justin Simeon too, but like... I I could be into a new Haunted Mansion movie. I could. I the really cast could. is pretty good. Okay, like, well... Uh, I'm reading down the cast. Rosario Dawson, thumbs up. Lakeith Stanfield, maybe thumbs up. Um, Owen Wilson, thumbs up. Tiffany Haddish, thumbs up. Jared Leto, thumbs down. Yeah, but he's playing like a ghost in a top hat. Like that's, that doesn't that's make me feel who he is anyway. Like I don't think he's going to be significant. Jared Leto as the voice of Alistair Crump slash Hatbox Ghost. Great. Whatever. Danny DeVito, good. Jamie Lee Curtis, good. So like, yeah, oh yeah, they'll probably sell me on wanting to see this at some point. But like, also like, let's let Rosario Dawson be in real movies again. Yeah, let's I do agree. that. Let's do that challenge, Hollywood. <laughs> uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Barry Pepper. I mean, I feel like I should be have more to say about Barry Pepper in this movie. I feel like he has the more significant part than Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's a real son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. Barry Pepper is not someone, I mean, like Barry Pepper is just one of those guys who like, uh, you know, journeyman actor shows up in a lot of things. Secret Scientologist. Um, oh, that I didn't know. Uh, Battlefield Earth. Yeah. The um, Battlefield Earth. I mean, not everyone in Battlefield Earth is a Scientologist. Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker innocent. Is a, a yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Barry Pepper is a Scientologist. Okay. Um, but like, I don't know. I'm sure people might yell at me to have like the one Barry Pepper performance, but a lot of Barry Pepper's work does kind of blur together. But like, he's never bad. Never. A he's bad good in True Grit. Everyone's so good at True. That's true. Grit. That's true. You know who my I favorite performance? I keep saying it's. My you know who my Jones, favorite but... performance in True Grit is, though. Well, no, second, my two favorite performances. You love Elizabeth Marvel. I do love but Elizabeth I think Marvel. you're going to say Damon. No, it's Donald Gleason. Oh, of who's in it for like is. half a scene, but he's so to good. To get in it. shot. Yeah, but he's, <laughs> he's great. He's in that movie to get shot. But he's great. He's great in that. No, Elizabeth Marvel. People don't talk enough about how tremendous Haley Steinfeld is in that movie. Okay. And like, caveat being, she got nominated for an Oscar for her first on screen performance. In a category in she didn't belong She's in. Fine. Like, Haley did fine. Like, I mean, she would have belonged in Best Actress. Um, yeah. Fine. Uh, I love that movie so much. <laughs> Did you just do the Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona? But about yes. but about True Grit. I feel like I've I, I've grandstanded about uh, the Cohen's True Grit enough on this podcast. Is that your favorite Cohen's? The thing is, like, I feel like I, I, that's always a a, a a transient thing, right? But like at this sure. current moment, it just kind of is. Like, I I know that's not cool. Oh, come on. Hip. True Grid is a cool Cohen's choice. They're all co- cool choices. You can't do a not cool Cohen's choice. I mean, there are not cool choices. Well, 
lady killers is not a cool yeah uh, who's out here saying lady killers yeah. that's not cool yeah uh my favorite is the, it's the most boring one it's 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 not uncool but like it's fargo it's always been fargo you know it's never better than fargo um anyway yeah what's your favorite spike lee oh i mean again it's kind of the boring choice but it's do the right thing this is up I mean, there. Do, do the right thing is not a wrong choice. Twenty fifth hour I mean, is up I, there, but do the right thing is my favorite. Yeah. I mean, do the right thing is my academic choice, but like I, I would your say it's Crooklyn. Yeah. 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 Crooklyn's great. Alfred Woodard and Delroy Lindo are so great. Oh my god, that, that should be Alfred Woodard's Oscar. My God. A lot of things should be Alfred Woodard's Oscar. But yeah. It's yeah, true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman, it's interesting to have an actor of the stature of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was just about to break into his Oscar period only a few years after this. This was during mm-hmm. the Philip Seymour Hoffman is the best actor to have never been nominated for an Oscar sort of phase of his career, right? right. Boogie Nights roughly through what's the like most recent, most uh, the closest to Capote he got. Um, hold on a second. I mean, that like 99, 2000 stretch is so many of the reasons why he got that, that I kind of at this point, oh, three, he's in Cold Mountain briefly. Yeah. You know what it is? And it's only in retrospect, but like, have you ever talked to somebody who's like, you know, who gives an astounding performance is Philip Seymour Hoffman in Along Came Polly. I've never seen that movie, but a lot I've of people. I've talked to a lot of heterosexual men who say things like that. <laughs> You're like, yes, I have spoken to a straight man. Um, yeah. But okay. So. Starting with Boogie Nights, right? Boogie Nights, Lebowski, Happiness, Flawless, Ripley, Magnolia, State and Maine, Almost Famous, Love Liza, Punch Drunk Love, Red Dragon, which, as junky as that movie is, he's absolutely the thing I remember most about that movie. I mean... It's him on fire in that chair, <laughs> sort of going down <laughs> the hill. Um, 25th Hour... That movie, that movie is... Uh, good quality junk, though we do not uh, we do not support Brett Ratner, no. but that is Brett Ratner's easily best. It's movie. an incredible cast too. Emily Watson. Uh, yeah, they're doing ninety percent of the Mary work. Louise Parker. Or anyway, back to film. Seymour Hoffman, Twenty Fifth Hour, Owning Mahoney, Cold Mountain, Along Came Polly, and then Capote in two thousand five. That is, I mean, the people who said best actor to have never been nominated for an Oscar, they sure weren't wrong. He worked a lot, and he worked very memorably. Because it's not just a best actor to never be nominated for an Oscar. It's also a thing, and I've talked about this before, where it's like, there are just those performers that the first time they get nominated for an Oscar, they're going to win. That's one of the things that I was so disappointed about, like Delroy Lindo not getting what Mm -hmm. he deserved for Defy Bloods all season, because he feels like that kind of actor. You know who else was that Uh, kind of actor? It was Regina King. Oh, 1,000%. You knew as soon as she got nominated that she was going to win. It's not quite the same thing as Octavia Spencer, because like Octavia Spencer, I'm like, she worked with everybody in the business and had a great relationship. Of course she won. But like, just these people who have been around for a long time have been very appreciated for a very long time, Mm -hmm. but have never gotten that unique opportunity that the second that they do, of course, they're gonna get it. Yeah, I agree. In terms of 25th Hour, though. It's interesting. He's always the last person I think of in this movie. And that's probably because I think his character is the least essential. Uh, I mean, yeah. The um, And I would probably go as far as to say the least interesting. 
Right. Like, I can see for as much as Barry Pepper as Frank, Francis, whatever, um, is gross to me and objectionable. And I I understand his place in that story. And I feel like mm-hmm. I think this I think it the story can't exist without him. I don't know if you can say the same about Jacob. I'm not sure what it's leaving a lot on the table. I'm not sure what that character says about the greater story being told well and this is one of the things that i like uh, that i feel like i'm being tough on the script for because like i feel like what this original script is is probably a little bit more cliche where it's like if you're gonna have a movie where it's about uh, a group of friends you have to have a third friend you know yeah. and it's like but it doesn't necessarily find as much interesting to do with that character. But like, because Spike Lee is kind of expanding the vision of what this like script is and what it means, like it becomes less of that type of movie. But like, when you look at one of the, like some of the snags in this movie, I think it goes back to the intention of the script being something different. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, Do we want to start sort of wrapping up going through strays and 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 miscellanea and whatnot sure what else do we have have on your notes uh let's see so i talked about the opening credits the tribute in light i kept just writing down locations throughout this movie because i wanted to sort of keep monty moves around the city a lot in this movie kind of intentionally and so sometimes Mm -hmm. he's on the upper east side sometimes he's down battery park and we're moving all around, and uh, so I just kept like jotting things down. Uh, of course, anytime there's an iMac in a classroom anywhere, I will make a note of that. <laughs> this is, of course, the peak iMac in a classroom era. Um, oh, I did write down Edward Norton looks so much like Lin Manuel Miranda in this movie. Did you catch? Do you think so? Is it just no. the goatee? Is it just the goatee on somebody that makes me think that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay. Isaiah Whitlock Jr. bringing his catchphrase from The Wire into this movie uh, kind of blew me away. I didn't even watch The Wire at the time, and I knew that uh, his character, that she, like that line, is a callback to The Wire. I was like, oh, that's Spike's, uh, Spike's going for it. And that. I would watch Isaiah Whitlock in anything. Yes. Um, I mean, all right. We talked about Jacob and Francis. The scene of the two of them talking, overlooking Ground Zero. And it's the most, besides the opening credits, is the thing that most directly references 9-11. It's the one where they're actually talking about it. They talk about, you know, the air quality down there, the whatever. Um, I don't know. I just think it's worth mentioning that i think it it justifies those two characters being in this thing in that they are the ones who are dealing with the aftermath right of Mm -hmm. monty going to jail he's going to go to jail and they are essentially afraid they're going to lose their friend forever that whatever version of him that existed before this is going to be gone. And I think that's where, when I talked about there's anxiety in this movie, along with a lot of Mm -hmm. other emotions, I feel that so much in that scene. Whereas I think that Spike Lee sort of overlooking 
this like still smoking crater essentially <coughs> and being like is there any possible way that things are the same after this you know what i mean that mm-hmm. you can sort of do we have the security of the sameness of history well even just the character of it so much of this movie i think talks about like the character of new york as a city as a people as whatever and the idea of that scene is when Monty comes back, he'll have changed so much and will have changed so much that, or will have maybe not changed as much as he has, that there's going to be no fitting it back into the way it was. And I think there's that anxiety of this city, this character of a city that I love so much, you know, there's maybe no recapturing how we felt on September 10th, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's that no i mean like we've talked about that scene i love that scene i almost feel like there's something to that scene that it's like it could be too much it could be too themey like for the movie to carry but i think it spends the rest of that movie with uh maybe a little bit more nuance because you mentioned it's like one of the few times that it feels like 9-11 is directly uh referenced i feel like the what follows from that scene is supposed to be as much like the nuance the actual substance of the plot like in a way, to me, it's very tropey, like, not to sound, like, academic or basic, whatever, but of, like, you know, the Shakespeare scenes before Macbeth shows up, <laughs> the Shakespeare scenes before Richard III shows up, you know, it, it just, like, the trope within, like, uh, classics like that, where it's, like, you know, you have a few guys... <laughs> talking about what the situation is and like there's something about that that like i don't think that's on the page but i do think that's how you know spike lee is delivering it to us that like again just adds to kind of the big canvas it makes this feel like more of a story than what it's about yeah my last note is in 2002 rodrigo prieto did cinematography for 25th hour and frida and eight mile all in the same year like that's a pretty good year you know what I mean? To work with... Three very different movies. Three and three very different filmmakers in Spike Lee, yeah. Julie Taymor, and Curtis Hansen. Yeah. 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 It was interesting. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Touchstone oh, pictures yeah, yeah, yeah. because I feel like on top of the somewhat hot potato, we don't know what to do with this movie, the, uh, you know, the onslaught of the December 2002 calendar in terms of awards and such... This movie is also released by Touchstone, which was a Disney property, keeping in mind also that Miramax was owned by Disney. So, like, a lot of the kind of awardsy or like prestige stuff was within that wheelhouse and not really within Touchstone. And they had you know, awards player movies, but I feel like when you look at what some of those movies are, like early Wes Anderson movies, um, they don't really have a home run. So some of this, I think is also that the movie's being handled by, uh, you know, not the, yeah, their awards, most awards intended or awards savviest. Uh, their awards went elsewhere in the, in the conglomerate around that time. Yeah. 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 It's worth mentioning. I mean, there's other examples too. You have things like, Oh brother, where art thou? Yes. Et cetera. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah. Beloved's another example. Um, another one from that same year that also didn't get 
maybe didn't get any. Is this a movie that is eligible for us? Is Signs a movie we could do? Uh, I don't think it got any nominations. Because that's another one where you feel like, at the very least, on a craft level, they could have gotten something. That is a movie that looks phenomenal. That is a movie that sounds phenomenal. It's still in the stage of M. Night Shyamalan movies following. I mean, now we don't have those conversations at all. uh, And Shyamalan's not really considered at all in terms of awards. But probably through Unbreakable and Signs, he was, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. Unbreakable also. (laughs) But like The Village got at least one nomination. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know. Justice for Signs. Signs is fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> that is my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie. Mm, well, got him kombucha girling all over the place. Um, yes, I think I will say that. Signs is my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie. The Sixth Sense is a close second, but yes. I mean, I really haven't rewatched a lot of his movies in, all, in quite some time. Old for all of its uh, uh, snags is still uh, a wonderful experience. It's a wonderful movie. I loved old so much. I am not. I am not capable of uh, dissenting against uh, Vicky Creep's vehicle. <laughs> All right. Should we move on to the IMDb game? Yeah. Why don't you tell our listeners what the IMDb game is? All right. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress and try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. The IMDb Free game. For all of hints Would you like to... and flying fists from your best friend who you are begging to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> to beat you up. Yes. Uh, you know, they might have been more um, willing to beat him up if he had said, beat me up, daddy. Okay. <laughs> all right. I don't know. When I see Brian Cox, I'm like, Ooh. Okay. All right. This is the. Never mind. We're, we're delving into psychosexual stuff, and it's. it's an hour and a half into this podcast, we we needed to start way sooner if we wanted to get into that. <laughs> it's just not enough time to get into it. I don't actually mean it in that way. It's the colloquial daddy. What you're saying is, you're loving it when it comes to Brian Cox. I'm pretty sure he says I'm loving it first and then then uh, does right. whatever he okay. wants to do. I've, I've made a terrible mistake. All right. IMDb game. Uh, are you giving your guessing first? I'll guess first. All right. Uh, so I went into the filmography of Spike Lee. Sure. We have talked much in this episode about um, Justice for Delroy Lindo. Uh, so I got Delroy Lindo for you. Okay. Any television? No television. Okay. Delroy Lindo, a classic IMDb game conundrum where because he's in a million movies he's in a lot of movies do you go for the popular ones that he's maybe in smaller roles or the maybe more niche ones that he's in bigger roles i will probably guess crooklyn crooklyn is incorrect he should have also been nominated for that five bloods is also a tough one because netflix although netflix is starting to show up in things now in imdb game but i'm still gonna maybe not do that Good old Delroy. 
Do I go for any other spike? Or something like, even something like the Devil's Advocate, which I feel like I see a lot in IMDb game. Maybe because that movie rules. It does rule. He's in a we- It's a bad movie that rules. He's also a weird part of that movie, though, where he's like this, like, voodoo practitioner who killed a woman <laughs> or something. That's not offensive at all. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm going to... God, this is going to be my second strike, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Clockers. Also incorrect. Damn. All right. All right. So you're getting four years. Yeah. I'm glad that I stumped you for once. I've been, I, I feel like I've been nice. So like I, I picked some. Get ready. I picked a hard movies. one for you too. So get ready. I feel less okay, bad about great, it now. <laughs> 1992, 1995, 2003, and 2020. Is 2020 Five Bloods? It is. Wow. Good for IMDb game. All right. 1992 is Malcolm X. It is. What are the other years? 95 and 2003. Our beloved 2003. 95 and 03. Ooh. 95 is going to be the one with the most egg on your face. Really? It's yeah. it's a big it's a biggie? Yeah. Dang. Well, I mean, uh, I I can't tell you because you're going to get it immediately. Mm. But um Is it like a major role of his or a major movie that I should remember? Or both. You should definitely remember this movie for the reasons of this podcast. Um, because we've done an episode on it, I'll just say. Oh, okay. From 95. What did we do from 95? That's not like How to Make an American Quilt. Um, Ransom is 96. Correct. What other Delroys have we done? All right, what's the other year? 03? I'm going to put a pin in 95. 03. 03 is a movie I feel like a lot of people were semi-ironically watching during the pandemic, you know, especially during the phase of, like, people were like, let's watch end-of-the-world movies during the pandemic. Oh, an end-of-the-world movie from 03. Or a disaster movie. A disaster. Not... This movie itself is a disaster. This movie's hilarious. Oh, oh, is it... No, it's not the core. That or is it the core? It's the, the core. core. Fucking rules. It's so bad, but <laughs> the it's core so good. Is so silly. It's so silly, but it's so good. He's so great in that. Um, God, I should. Ninety five is a movie that we have done. Uh, the reason we did this episode was specifically for one actor, though. Like this had success elsewhere beyond that one actor. What's the genre? comedy a comedy we thought a comedy could make it in 1995 what fools were we? well we thought we could it could make it because this actor had recently had a huge comeback oh it's get shorty of course it, it is. is get shorty yeah yeah he's great in that uh you're right i am kicking myself i should have done better on that oh well i mean he's in a billion movies. i don't know how you can forget the core that's exactly the movie you think of when you think of Delroy Lindo. I, I honestly, it's probably in the top ten of movies I think of when I think of Delroy Lindo. I probably should have uh, come up with that sooner. All right. I mean, thank goodness Defy Bloods is there because, like, one of the best performances of the past twenty five years. Yeah. Yeah. No question. No. No hesitation. Should have won the Oscar. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. 
Um, for you, I went through the vector of screenwriter, author David Benioff, who in real life is married. Quite a journey going through his filmography. Well, I didn't so much. I just went to his personal life tab because he is married, of course, to Amanda Peet. Mr. Amanda Peet. So I'm giving you Amanda Peet. No television. Sorry, fans of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Sorry, fans of Jack and Jill. Sorry, fans of that TV show she did with Melanie Linsky that I can't remember the title of. Um, Happiness? Amanda Peet. Anyway, whatever. Um, a Lot Like Love showed up for Ashton Kutcher, so I'm going to guess A Lot Like You're Love. You're a psychopath for getting that right. Like, genuinely, I'm looking at this. It took me forever to get that movie. I will never. And I'm like, that. he's going to maybe, maybe get else. some of these other ones, but he's never going to get A Lot Like Love. Mother. Um, it showed up for someone else. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting whatever her, like, sexy movie was like not wild things but she was in a movie that was like wild things right and i can't remember what it is um if you're looking for hints on my face togetherness was the show uh, by the way that i was thinking of with melanie linsky oh i still want to catch up to that show it was good. um yeah i know people that i trust really liked that show um and like one season signed me up <laughs> like i don't have to watch 70 episodes of something great um Ickby goes down you would think, but no. No, I had a feeling. Um, some things gotta give. No, not something's gotta give. Wow, I would have thought maybe okay. that too. All right, so you're. I mean, it's a crap part. Like that's not the part you want to play no, in that movie. No, it's not. But that is sort of. It's not her sexy movie, but like that is when she was in the range of playing. Like, she's like the hot one in that movie, right? right? She's the hot young one. Um, all right, your years are 2000 uh, years. I don't think they're going to help 2000, 2003 and 2009. 2009. Really? Yeah. Um, now I just have to remember other Amanda Pete movies and I like Amanda Pete. So like getting into this headspace of like blankness is very frustrating. Um, is 2000. It's uh, what's the, the one with, is it Shane West? Uh, whatever it takes. Uh, I don't know if she's in that. It's not that, but I think there, there's there is... like a teen movie with four of them on there. Oh, um, uh, it's not Saving Silverman, but there's a Jason Biggs one. It's Saving Silverman. It's not correct. Saving Silverman. It's not correct, okay. but that's the movie you're thinking of. Yeah. Oh, damn. but that's not um... the one I'm looking for. No, <laughs> no, there's one where there's four like teens yeah, on it, a poster. That's, uh, that's Saving Silverman. No, but there's there's one, I think it's even James Franco is like her love interest. Um, Hold on. Uh, the Whole Nine Yards. That's the one in 2000. Yes, correct. Okay. Um, I'm looking <laughs> up whatever it yards. takes now, because I think you've got everything else about that movie, but I don't think Amanda Peet is in that movie. Whatever it takes, Shane West, Marla Sokoloff is maybe who you're thinking of. Jody Lynn O'Keefe. Jody Lynn O'Keefe is who I'm thinking there of. I go. apologize. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, the whole ten yards. No. Okay. All right. So you still need O three and O nine. Um, o three is a movie with a lot of people in it, a lot of cast members. 
in a genre that sort of calls for exactly that. Is it like Casa de los Babies? No. What other kind of genre you're like, oh, we need to cast like a lot of people in this for the function of the plot? A uh, slasher movie. A... More specific than slasher, but you're not on the right track. A Robert Altman movie. No, um... like, oh, a crime has been committed. Oh, is it identity? It's identity, yes. Identity. A whodunit. Yeah. All right. A whodunit all in one person's mind. Exactly. Stupid. <laughs> it's stupid, but it's very watchable. It's so stupid. I like it. Um,. All right, the 2009 movie is ironic for being a 2009 movie. Oh, it's 2012. It's 2012. <laughs> Stupid! <laughs> I've never seen 2012. 2012, the tagline, we were warned. <laughs> it is stupid. And in terms of um, disaster movies that are exactly like each other, it's not as good as The Day After Tomorrow. The Day After Tomorrow has what 2012 wants, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Amanda Peet, good performer, yeah. like natural talent, has that Rosario Dawson thing where it's like everything that comes out of their mouth, you believe it, but like never got a chance to be great. Give us a movie with Amanda Peet and Rosario Dawson. I take that back. What not she in like a Lynn? No, she's in... Um, Please give. Yes, she's in Please Give. Yeah. Everyone is great at Please Give. Yeah. Nicole, we'll work with Amanda Peet again and cast Rosario Dawson with her. Oh, that would be great. Do it. Uh, we get a new Nicole Hall of Center movie next year. I'm very excited. <laughs> All right. Good episode. Good episode. That, I believe, is it. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Twitter, for one thing. Letterboxd, for another thing. Both of which are at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out as with Apple Podcast visibility. So don't tell us all the things you hate in a torrent of slurs and expletives. Tell us you love us with a nice review. That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Roadhouses of Astoria to the penthouses on Park Avenue. From the projects in the Bronx to the lofts in Soho. From the tenements in Alphabet City to the brownstones in Park Slope to the split levels in Staten Island. Let an earthquake crumble it. Let the fires rage. Let it burn to fucking ash, and then let the waters rise and submerge this whole rat-infested place. <laughs>